0: Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everyone. It's lovely to be here. Um, Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of this land, the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation, on which lands the University of Sydney is built. May we pay our respects and learn lessons from the knowledge imparted from Aboriginal custodianship of country. Welcome to you all. It's a wonderful turnout. Monk and I were just interested to know what brought you out from your lives to hear this evening. Um, but it's not about us asking questions of you. I'm uh, Professor Sandra Cooper, I'm a professor at Sydney Medical School and I work at the Children's Hospital at Westmead and it gives me great pleasure to welcome Monkol Lek back to university grounds. I've known Monkol for 10 years since he and his wife Angela came and did their PhDs with us in our team at the Children's Hospital at Westmead um, studying genetic causes of inherited nerve and muscle disorders. So Monkol, uh is born in Cambodia. He came to Australia when he was 18 months of age. He went to Seven Hills West Public School and Blacktown Boys High School. And then he's an absolute glutton for punishment and he's done three different undergraduate degrees and a PhD. So he's clearly got a few Ys short. <laughs> Monkol, I'm going to pass it over to you to talk about um, three stories tonight and what brought you to this stage today. Welcome.
1: Well thank you very much, Sandra, for the very kind introduction and generous comments and thank you uh, for the audience to give, for giving up your Monday night to be here um, and it's a fantastic turnout. So, so yeah, so I'm really delighted to be here, back at home, I arrived um, yesterday so I'm not thinking about the time difference in the East Coast um, and really honoured to be here at the University of Sydney where I did my PhD. So, um the title of my talk is um, Taking Control of Our Genetic Destiny and I mean this in two levels. One level is taking control and trying to understand what's causing genetic disease in rare disease patients. And on another level, now that we have all these exciting new genetic technologies, is taking control in terms of knowing what's exactly causing our disease and translating this to therapy, something we haven't been able to do um, until the last few years to actually be truly personalized. And so I'm gonna give you three stories of patients. One, my own personal diagnostic odyssey. The second is um, a family in Australia that was the first family we sequenced when when I arrived in Boston at the Broad Institute um, to work on neuromuscular diseases. And the last one is the story of another patient and the focus on some of the research we're doing at Yale University. So first of all, I'm very nostalgic. I always think about when was I last at a particular place? So here I'm thinking, when was I last at the University of Sydney? And the last time that I was here at the University of Sydney at the Quad was actually at my graduation in 2012. And it was a special day because here is Professor Catherine North, and this was her last official university event and where she actually gave the talk also at my graduation before she became the director at Murdoch Children's Hospital. It was also special because my current boss in Boston came along also, who's also a University of Sydney alumni and also a former student of Catherine North, and it was also special to have that graduation with all my fellow PhD students who finished at the same time, including my wife also, which made it also a very special day when I was here. And it was a very sunny day, as you can see on that picture. So this is the last time I was at the Quad in 2012, not too long ago in terms of my life. So I'm going to, get to tell you on the first journey, this is my personal journey, as a rare disease patient. So this is now me talking as a patient rather than a researcher. And this is taken in, this was taken in Bankstown. Um, I'm not sure that fountain is still there. This was in the 80s, taken in Bankstown. This is with my brother. Um, in Bangsam, one of the suburbs we lived in and so my family when I was a baby around about eighteen months old, arrived in Australia as refugees from Cambodia we were fleeing the Khmer Rouge and what was happening um, internally in our country and I was the youngest of seven children and for your convenience I've labeled all the family members, including my mum and my dad, and this is me, the youngest of seven children and and for those with much better eyesight than me, you'll notice there's this pattern with the birthdays also, the 4th of the 4th, the 5th of the 5th, 6th of the 6th, and the 7th of the 7th. We can't show all family members, but you can see that the pattern started from the 1st of the 1st, if I was the youngest of 7. And I'm just really grateful that this um immigration officer has much better sense of humour than the... American immigration officer, and he looked at my mum and said, wow, you're just good at your timing. And so my birthday got changed the 10th of April, because my parents knew when I was actually born relative to the Cambodian New Year. So, you know, um, unfortunately, all our paperwork got burnt during the time of the Khmer Rouge, and birthdays wasn't a big thing in South- Southeast Asia. So. So we arrived in Australia and one of the suburbs I grew up in is Bangstown, so I learned to enjoy Australian sports such as cricket, rugby league and um, I've always been a fan of the Canterbury-Bankstown Bulldogs ever since, um, unfortunately they're not going through good times at the moment. Um, and also um, when I was um, 10 years old, we moved to live in Blacktown where I went to Seven Hills West and then to Blacktown Boys High School. So living in working class suburbs of um, Western Sydney, I learned to sort of like not take it, things for granted and truly cherish all the good things that's, that have happened in both my family, family's life and my life. And so growing up in a, such a big family, one thing you learn is learn to share, but now looking back, sharing it to me was a little bit overrated. The other thing you learn is you learn how to eat rice and enjoy rice and not the thing that goes with the rice. Um, as my, We only had one income earner and that was my dad and so you know, we had a very small house and very modest living in terms of that. So when I was about 10 years old, this is the 10 year old version of me, um, my sister got diagnosed with a muscle disease so, um, and they thought it was genetic because my parents uh, didn't have the muscle disease and, it, and they were thought to be carriers of the disease. So that means they had one defective copy of the gene out of the two copies. And, uh, uh, I'll I'll speak out the math to you. So that means that with recessive diseases that each one of my siblings had a 50% chance of inheriting one defective copy and they'll just be carriers and unaffected. So they still have one functional copy to create that muscle protein while they had a 25% chance of getting two normal copies and my sister and I got the bad end of the stick, we were the remaining 25% chance and got two defective copies and we couldn't produce muscle protein. But at the time I didn't know this because also this was the late 80s and there was only one disease gene known for muscular dystrophy so even, even if we did know, it's hard, it's hard to screen. So I didn't know sort of like my genetic destiny to develop a muscle disease because my muscles were normal functioning at the time, I was able to enjoy a relatively normal childhood. It was not until I was 19 that I started realising, so this is towards the end of my first university degree, um, that I no- started noticing that my muscles were sore. So. I would take public transport from Blacktown to Central Station, and from Central a bus to Kensington to the University of New South Wales. And so it was about an hour and a half there, an hour and a half back. So I'd come home, and I would be absolutely exhausted, um, and it, I was too exhausted to study. So I also noticing, notice at train station, at the train station, I found it difficult to go upstairs, and you know just keeping balance also when I've been nudged on uneven surfaces. So, as a young man, you'd always think, maybe I'm just having a bad week, this will just go away. But, you know, as it started getting worse, I couldn't keep ignoring it. So, I went from doctor to doctor until one doctor thought, I'll do a blood test. And what he was testing for was this protein that leaks into your blood called curatin kinase. When your muscle is damaged, this leaks into your blood. So my levels were quite high that he'd say, did you run a marathon or do some athletic? And I said, not at all. And so he goes, then there must be something seriously wrong with your muscles because it's showing muscle damage. And from there, I got a clinical diagnosis and later on gave a muscle biopsy. One of the reasons why I delayed giving a muscle biopsy is because it really, really hurt. Um, and I thought it would hurt and it really did hurt. And so, um, at the time, because um, our genetic diagnosis wasn't um, too fantastic, proteins were looking at proteins in muscle biopsies is a way of actually looking at clues for what was actually causing a disease, and eventually we got a diagnosis of uh, TCAP that was causing a rare form of limb girdle muscular dystrophy, type 2G, and this was through the hard work of the the researchers at the University of Sydney, based at Westmead Children's Hospital. And this research effort was led by Dr. Nigel Clark and Dr. Lee Waddell, who would go down each one of those rabbit holes until they eventually found it. And so I was incredibly grateful, and one of the reasons I went to the University of Sydney and also Westmead Children's Hospital, because at the time, I didn't actually have a genetic diagnosis, and the tip I was given was that if you wanted people to work on your disease, just be there every day. So I was that person they would see in the hallway every day. I never asked them, did you find something yet? But you know, um, so, and this was then presented as a finding Uh, the World Muscle Society Conference in 2012. And this is how the uh, genetic diagnosis would look like for people who haven't seen one. So it's just a matter of fact, this is the mutation. And and what we did to celebrate the hard uh, hard work and efforts of people at the University of Sydney is we had a celebration cake and you can see we've got the gene and the mutation on that cake. And this is with Angela, my wife. (laughs) Um, celebrating. Just, you know, for me, finding that answer was just the first step as a patient of trying to actually fight the disease and also know what was installed for me and also for my sister. So one of the reasons why it took a while to find the mutation is this, just this notion um, that, and I, I feel... It, a lot more in my research of how european centric research is that a lot of the things we know from medical research is based on european cohorts and what i'm trying to show here is that the mutation i carry it isn't a surprise is only found in east Asians and you can see europeans do not carry it looking at the two europeans and and that's the reason why it wasn't prioritised in, in terms of the gene that was actually screened, but what's obvious is also that my family's from Cambodia. We're actually Chinese Cambodians, so you can't apply what's common in Europeans and what works for Europeans for every, you know, for a person from every place of the world. So it's something uh, that I learned. So now onto the next sort of like story or journey, and this is. Um, a story of using next generation sequencing. So this technology became the emerging technology when I finished my PhD. And it, it was an amazing technology that allows us to sequence and find the letters of each gene in the whole genome simultaneously and very rapidly. So no longer would we have to actually do it the old way. But before I talk about that, I'll go over the central dogma of genetics. So we start off with DNA. So all the DNA content of each cell of our body would be called the, hum- the, the genome or the human genome. And this, o- this is organized as chromosomes. So we have 23 pairs of chromosomes for a total of 46 chromosomes. And an RNA is sort of like a copy of the gene. So the instructions then go out and then we can make proteins from that RNA. So that's the central dogma of genetics, something to keep in mind as I step through the next set of slides. So the emerging technology was next generation sequencing and it came in three flavours of this genomic technology. The first is whole genome sequencing. That's sequencing the whole DNA content, all three billion letters or two sets of three billion letters and it represents this whole apple. At the time, yes, we could achieve it in 2012, but it was very, very expensive, so we rarely did it. And what was something that was more strategic and economical is to do exome sequencing. So exome sequencing is about the 1.5% slice of that apple, and this 1.5% slice is where the genes are, and not only the genes, the coding bits of the genes. the coding bits are the bits that have the instructions to make proteins, and this is the bit that we actually understand the best. So it's a very economical approach. Let's just sequence the bits that we best know how to interpret rather than the whole genome, which is still sort of like the black, uh, the black matter of genetics. We're still trying to understand what does the rest of the genome do. And then RNA sequencing takes this concept one step further perhaps we're only interested in not only, say, 20,000 or so genes in the human genome, but only the genes that matter in a particular tissue. So for muscle disease, we may be only interested in the impact that genetic mutations may have on the genes that are expressed in muscle because they're the most important, while another set of genes may not be expressed in muscle, so may not have as much of an impact. So the old way, and this is the way that uh, the approach that was taken for for my family is that a patient would come into the clinic and get a clinical diagnosis and clinical diagnosis would be based on um, the muscles that are affected, how weak you are, your family history and things like that. And based on that clinical diagnosis, you'd go to the list of known disease genes and screen them one at a time, either the, the DNA or the protein to see Uh, if there are any clues that they were defective. And so this is very laborious one-by-one gene approach, while exome sequencing allows us to actually screen all the genes simultaneously, so we're hypothesis-free and there's no bias in actually looking at those genes. So this is what we did for, this is the first family that we sequenced um, in Boston for my my project in Boston, and this was at the Broad Institute. And this was a, a collaboration with the University of Sydney, particularly at the Westmead Children's Hospital. To sequence, a lot of the families that still didn't have an answer in terms of their genetic diagnosis. So we caught this Family A. Family A had two affected girls with nemoline myopathy. And you can see using the old approach of screening one gene at a time based on the clinical diagnosis, after nine years, we still failed to find an answer for this family. So we wanted to see taking a new, unbiased approach of being able to sequence all the genes simultaneously, would we be able to find an answer? But one of the challenges is, if you have that much data from that many genes, how do you actually sift through it? So There are three main types of genetic variants that you can get when you actually screen that many genes. So One is synonymous variants, and as the name implies, you don't actually change an amino acid in a particular protein. The next class of genetic variants are called missense variants, and this is when the change actually changes the amino acid. So you're just changing one amino acid out of the whole protein. And the last is pro- protein truncating variants or loss of function variants, and these changes either stop a protein from being produced or pr- producing a truncated version so we're most interested in the last two the missense and the protein truncating variants because they're the ones that are most likely to have an impact on function and therefore cause disease but when we sequence a patient we get approximately just under 12,000 of those so now we're most interested in which ones are common in the population and which ones are rare in the population as When you're looking at rare diseases, it's logical that it's the rare variants that are actually going to cause rare disease, because if it was the common variants, there should be a lot more people in the population with a particular disease. In other words, to make sense of that one exome that we sequence for the patient, we have to ask the question in the context of tens of thousands of exomes to know which ones are rare and likely to cause disease. So this is the project that I worked on in Boston, and this was never been done before to actually create this large catalogue, firstly from 92,000 exomes or 92,000 individuals, then we actually subsetted it down to, to just over 60,000 individuals. And the reason why is for, well, there's a several reasons. One, we only wanted to keep the high quality exomes. The next is we had to filter out related individuals because when you're counting rare variants, related individuals share those rare variants and it actually inflates that count. Next, and this is the reason why we had to remove a lot of the 92,000 is that not all the samples were consented for sharing in this manner, and so we had to respect the consent and actually remove them before it was actually shared. And the last point is that we had to get rid of people who had severe pediatric onset diseases because we were going to use this to actually interpret rare disease patients. But one thing you may have noticed in the list of cohorts that went to this resource is that there are a lot of common diseases there such as type 2 diabetes. But the reality is that when you have a cohort of people in their 40s, 50s and 60s, that you are going to get people with type 2 diabetes. Uh, heart disease and things like that. So what I normally say with this cohort is they're a cohort of relatively healthy people. So what this allowed us to do is, um, for the first time, uh, create a resource of unprecedented size and diversity. You can see here, colouring the different regions, what people were using was the ESP dataset to interpret their exomes, which stands for the Exome Sequencing Project. You can see it is quite large, but in terms of diversity, it only represents European-Americans and African-Americans, while the resource that we created actually has a much wider set of diversity, such as East Asians and also South Asians, which ironically make up a lot of the world's population. There is still a lot of ways to go in terms of increasing that diversity, because the East Asians, South Asians is only one one city or one part of um, those regions, so we can increase diversity, especially in the non-European populations. But what it did allow us, and what people regularly use this resource to do, is filter out variants found in patients' exomes. So we can improve from using, say, the ESP data set, where we get somewhere between 600 to 1,000 variants to about under 200 rare variants found in, disease patients and from that we can then decide which ones are likely to cause disease. So going back to this problem, we can then go from just under 12,000 to just to 132 variants likely to cause disease and then using inheritance patterns, knowing that this is a recessive disease, we have two affected girls and unaffected parents. We we were able to narrow it down to just one gene, and the reason why it wasn't discovered using the old method of screening known genes is because this was a novel gene to cause nemaline myopathy. And so, one of the gold standards to, when you make a discovery is show that there are other unrelated families with that same disease with that same mutation, and also to create an animal model and show that when you mutate the animal model for this gene that the, that also has a similar disease. So it was a very satisfying thing to go from not having an answer for this family for over nine years and using this new technology available in the United States to actually get this down to a few weeks from receiving the DNA and getting an answer for this family. So ironically, the paperwork to get the samples to the United States actually took longer than the science itself. So with this part um, it was a major team effort in terms of the exome aggregation project to create that resource so that the world could use it to filter interpret genes and also working on the various neuromuscular disease cohorts that I worked on while I was in Boston so it's a massive team effort and you know one of the major collaborations was with the University of Sydney and at Westmead Children's Hospital and also we collaborated around the world and also locally at Boston also um, the great team effort at Massachusetts General Hospital and the Broad Institute where that work was done. And in terms of the exome aggregation consortia project, that this was a massive effort of goodwill from pro- principal investigators and national consortia contributing their data to make up those 60,000 individuals. A lot of this data hadn't actually been published and also the Exome Aggregation Consortia data set, we made that available two years prior to publication because for us it was about trying to make a resource available and not it, not it being on our timetable but being on you know something that we can make available as soon as possible and then iterate on trying to make it a higher quality data set for the world to work on. So I'm gonna transition the last story and this is showing some of the promises of um, personalized medicine and something to show hope for the patients. So one of the things I I did have a good fortune of working on is getting to genetic diagnosis much quicker for rare disease patients. But, You know, if you're cynical, you would say that I'm just getting better at delivering bad news faster, and I didn't want my career to be just that. I wanted it also to translate, mainly because I'm a rare disease patient. So what can we do knowing that exact knowledge of the genetic mutation to actually translate to actually help the patients to not just deliver the news? So I'm going to tell... But one thing I'm gonna touch upon before I go into that story is that during my years at the Broad Institute, one of the emerging exciting new technologies was CRISPR. So when I left uh, for the United States in 2012, no one had heard of this word because this hadn't become mainstream until about 2014. So there are two components of this technology and it's actually a system from bacteria and it fighting finding pathogens for bacteria. So there's two, two parts of this system. The first part is um, the guide RNA. So you can think of the guide RNA is sort of like the address. So where in the human genome do you want to go to? to bring a particular protein. The particular protein here is Cas9 that takes that address and actually goes to it. And this protein has a particular function and that's to create a double-stranded break at this address in the human genome. And when it creates that break in DNA, what happens is the DNA repair machinery quickly tries to fix it up and it just shoves any DNA there. So it's a great technology to precisely go to a part of the genome and disrupt the gene, but but other researchers were working on ways of actually precisely editing and not just going to a particular place in the genome and disrupting it, but that was the first application. How can we use it to disrupt and turn off genes and see what the impact was? And so my collaborators at the University of Massachusetts said, I think we have a way of actually fixing your mutation and we want to try it out. And the first thing they wanted was a sample from me. So I went to the, the University of Massachusetts and actually gave a sample, and I gave a skin biopsy, which doesn't hurt as much as a muscle biopsy, which I was very, very thankful of. And this is actually my leg getting so this is a skin punch. So a little punch comes in. Uh, under a general and takes a little bit of skin, and you can see that little bit of skin that it's taken out. And from this, um, what I didn't mention is from this you can then convert it into muscle cells, so that green is showing a muscle protein, the blue is the nuclei of the cell. so you can create muscle cells from it. And what, that was sh- and what they showed in uh, a-, a month ago, which was the best 40th birthday present I've ever received is a way of correcting it. So this was published in the prestigious journal Nature, and they were able to get uh, just under 80% correction of the cells. So either both copies or one copy, but either way it was enough to restore function in the cells. So they're working on ways of trying the correction on an animal model, so a mouse model, and I'm helping them find other patients around the world. So for me, it's extremely satisfying story to see it go one step from genetic diagnosis to a way of actually correcting. And so inspired by this and starting up my own lab in, uh, at Yale University, this is how the lab looked like on day one in 2018, um, very empty in the background of Angela and I, and this is how it looks like in 2019. So the lab has grown quite big uh, during that time, in that little year. So I'm gonna end with uh, a story of us working on personalized therapy. So this is a patient with a DMD mutation in a form of Becker's muscular dystrophy. So. He's now confined to a wheelchair. He's around 25 years of age, and the mutation he has is a 30 kb deletion, or 30,000 bases deleted, in his uh, in his DMD gene on the X chromosome. So I'll try my best to explain this, but for the scientists, hopefully you can follow along. Um, And so this removes the first exon or the first sort of like instructions to make the DMD protein or the dystrophin protein. And what you can see here is the absence of data right here, which correlates to that deletion. And so what we're thinking of is that this deletion removes this region and this stops us from making the muscle form of this gene. But One fortunate thing is that there is the Purkinje and there's a cortical isoform, so non-muscle or brain isoforms, that are relatively intact. So the idea is, why don't we actually tell the machinery to actually turn on these genes? So there's So this is borrowing off the the CRISPR idea and using the Cas9 protein. So instead of telling the Cas9 protein to go to a particular place in the human genome and create a double-stranded break, scientists have gotten very clever in saying, we don't want you to wreak havoc on the human genome and create double-stranded breaks. We're going to remove that ability to create it and actually tag on proteins that we want you to bring to a particular place in the human genome. In this case, we're bringing machinery to turn on genes. So, So now we can turn on genes that will replace the muscle in terms and have very, very similar function because it's only the start of that gene that's a little bit different between the two isoforms. And what we showed is a proof of concept in a cell that doesn't produce muscle protein. So first of all on the RNA level, if you remember the central dogma of genetics, we're going from RNA then to protein, that we could show, first of all, using the Titan as a control, we will show we could show upregulation of another muscle protein, Titan. So this is probably forty thousand times what we would normally see in this cell. And also switch on the muscle and also the two non muscle isoforms as a way of showing that we can turn other forms on that this patient can't actually express to hopefully rescue his muscle disease. And we also have shown this on the protein level. So this is very preliminary. So for the scientists in the audience, this has to be repeated many, many times to actually make this a better result, but I'm just showing you um, the raw results of science before it gets cleaned up and repeated many, many times for a robust result. So what we're most interested in is not the expression of the RNA, but the expression of the protein, because that's the machinery or the thing that's actually going to perform the function. And here we can actually show we can actually switch on the cortical and the pekinje or the non-muscle isoforms in that patient. So it's one step closer to actually developing therapy. So we've gone from this is a genetic mutation in the patient where, say, it was 10 years ago, we would just say, well, that's it. That's your genetic mutation. Now we can say, this is a genetic mutation. What can we design to actually address this? And a lot of this has to be personalised. And we know, you know, previously we were sort of like limited to actually taking sort of like a one size fits all approach, like steroids is good for muscle wasting. Hopefully, this will work for all patients. So now we can actually address the genetic root cause of a disease and not just the clinical symptoms. So, with that, I'll end. And for this piece of work, um, you know, this was a massive team effort from the team at Yale, from my team at Yale, particularly. Uh, Karen Woodman and also Angela, who designed and performed a lot of that experiment to show that proof of concept. There's still a long way to go, but this is just showing how we can use the latest technologies in um, genetic editing to actually achieve some of this personalised approach. So the last person I would like to thank is my wife, Angela, who's gone on every step of this journey with me, from you know the first story, the second, and the third story. And for the Lord of the Rings fans out there, sometimes I call her my Samwise Angie because I don't think I would have got far without her help on each part of that journey. Cool, thank you very much.
0: It's quite an inspirational story. So, Mongkol, I think you've got a really interesting background, coming from Cambodia to Seven Hills Primary, Blacktown, the University of Sydney, Harvard, Yale, and now back to Sydney for the TED Talk. You're one of seven kids. You're only one of three of your year from Blacktown Boys High to go to university. So what do you think it is about you, your family, and your background? that made you one of those three? And have you always been a terribly nerdy overachiever? (laughs) (laughs) Well,
1: first of all, I'd just like to say, you know, um, a lot of things is luck also. So, you know, um, being at the right place at the right time has helped me on that journey. So um, luck does play a part, but also creating your own luck also. So I think one of the things that has driven me. It's two things. One is that not growing up with much and things like, um, and also seeing the sacrifices my parents made and also my older siblings, so that I could have a good education, I could just concentrate on my education and not anything else, was actually a huge advantage um, for me. Um, and and so I felt it was necessary to work hard and pay, pay that sort of sacrifice back. And the second is probably, you know, comparing, say myself to the second youngest or the third youngest is that I've always wanted to know how things work. And not only that, um, I think what frustrates me the most is when something is broken. Um, I'm the kind of person if something's broken, I can't sleep that night. I'm always Googling, trying to find out why something broke. And so with my body broken, um, you know. The the thing that I think is a lot important say than a toy or a remote control being broken, um, I really really want to know why type thing. So yeah, so a lot of it's luck also.
0: Yeah, sure. So <clears throat> your first career, you first did training in engineering and got a job at IBM and computing. Was there a specific moment in time? where you thought, I'm going to go back and retrain to do medical research. Was there one specific event, or was it a culmination of events? I
1: think it's a combination of events, so so hopefully no one in IBM is in the audience, but um, um, I had a lot of free time um, in that job, so I I had a lot of time to ponder and think about the biology and genetics and things like that, and I thought "I, I really need a good foundation because I don't quite understand everything. That contributed also a news article that I found about research that was happening in Melbourne on muscular dystrophy. So I cut out that little you know piece of newspaper out and I stared at that for quite a while. And so there was part of me that, you know, it made me think a lot because part of me just says that I can come here, work at IBM, be good at my job, work hard and sort of like, get paid a higher and higher salary, but I'll go home and be dissatisfied, dissatisfied that I'm not using some of my skills and talents to actually help people with my disease. And so part of me thinks that after seeing it, you know, I like my neurologist and things like that, but it's kind of selfish of me to think that my neurologist would think about my disease night and day, would think about it in the shower, think about it on the weekend. no one, for patients out in the audience, no one's gonna care about your disease more than you because it's actually affecting you, especially if it's affecting you 24 seven. So so it's a combination of all those thoughts and me just saying, well, let's just go on an invention and see what happens.
0: I can distinctly remember when you and Angela came to the lab, I think it was in either 2007 or 2008, And we met with Catherine North in her office. I don't know if you remember. Yes, I do. (laughs) And I can remember thinking a husband and wife team, I'm not so sure how this will go. And also, I think sometimes it's difficult when your students are really close to the disorder that they're studying. It brings great strength, but it also brings risk. And uh, science is plagued by failure. You know, we, fa- we learn from failure, we're experts at failing, we're very expert at failing. Um, and so you were there with Angela, and I guess it's part of the story is you're not the only talented researcher in your family. How did you meet Angela, and what are the dynamics of working as a successful husband and wife duo? <laughs>
1: So um, I met Angela um, over the internet. This is before um, internet dating became a thing and this is over, um, this is showing my age. This is over a a program called um, IRC. Um, It was a chat program. It was a very basic text chat program. That's where I met Angela and, um, and then Angela and I just decided to um, do a degree in um, what we are most interested in. That was biology and genetics, which actually give us a really great foundation. So I, I forgot the second part oh, about the husband-wife. Yeah,
0: the duo. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's worked well so far, mainly because I've worked on um, aspects that I am passionate about, and that's using data analysis of the big data that a lot of genetics actually produces. So next generation sequencing is just a problem of big data. How do we actually sift through that data to get the most informative piece of information to actually answer a particular question? While Angela was more interested in working on wet lab experiments, so the experimental components. So so we've had our separate strengths um, and then we can help each other on our strengths. So, But now we're we're sort of like merging on some of the things that um, we're both interested in, and that's the translational thing. So it will be interesting how that goes too, because we both have different opinions on how to achieve things.
0: Yeah, but that's part of the magic, isn't it? <clears throat> okay, so... About Kids Neuroscience Centre, so you know, part of what drives us in the lifeblood, really, of Kids Neuroscience Centre is finding genetic answers for families with rare disorders. What, you know, it's incredibly meaningful for us, actually, you know, I have I wanted to show these slides. Um, before n- next generation sequencing, it would take us two or three years to find the answer for a family. And Did it take us about two years to find yours?
1: No, it took much longer.
0: Long, longer, did it? Okay. Yeah. So now, now what would take a whole PhD, we can we can do in in a, in a week. Um, but it it means so much to us. We celebrate every time, and we keep on going back to our unsolved families. You know, we still pull out families from 20 years ago that we haven't got the answer. And every time there's a new technology, we, we go back and we throw the kitchen sink at them. We make cakes. I think Francis made this cake for you, hand decorated it. Um, <laughs> I took away the mutation because I felt that it was a variant because I felt it was divulging too much. Um, and Angela, having you and Angela in our team was so meaningful. This is a quilt that my team made because I was Angela's supervisor and along it is a little, a little piece of decoration, all of our families we went home and our kids or our partners made something and, we, and Francis sewed it into a quilt, and in that quilt you won't see it unless you've got a keen eye, but it actually is, is Moncol's genetic code and his genetic variant is in the quilt. So that's what it means to Kids Neuroscience Centre, not just for you but for all of the families that we care for. What did it mean for you to find the specific genetic answer?
1: Well, um, for me, um, it was the end of one of the journeys of curiosity because knowing the gene that causes your disease gives you a lot of information. It gives you, uh, particularly if it's a known disease gene, um, you can know um, if there are particular parts of your body or particular sort of symptoms that you're going to develop and be very, very proactive about it. So for mine, there will be a heart complication, so I can be very proactive about that and monitor the condition because it's much better to sort of like Prevent rather than treat the symptoms later on if I haven't taken good care of myself. So it's a picture into the future or a portal into the future. Although my sister is older and does have the disease, she's another portal into the future. But it's definitely a portal into the future, knowing that. So it was the end of one journey and also a way of, as as I showed in my presentation, now I know the gene, the mutation that I could approach other researchers and say, well, are you working on something that may help with this gene mutation? And I sort of like was very fortunate that my collaborators at the University of Massachusetts actually say, well, in fact, we do. So can you donate some cells and we can give it a try?
0: And how does it feel being on the other side? So for those scientists or geneticists in the room, you'll know the power that EXAC has brought to our problem of finding answers for families with rare things. Um, it's transformed it. Uh, It's transformed the world. What Moncol and Daniel have built at the Broad Institute has transformed genomic medicine. So Moncol, can you understand now what it's like to be on the giving end of diagnoses? And do you find it, do you get person, do you find it meaningful yourself to know that you've made such a difference for other families walking behind you?
1: Well, I find it extremely satisfying because, one, because I know how the feeling feels like. And also, it, it's satisfying in two ways. One, as a nerdy scientist, it's always great to solve a problem and know that you solved that problem. And second, you know, it is great to deliver. I, I won't be so pessimistic in saying this, good news for them because that's one stage of their journey that's sort of like complete. They can plan for the next stage. So. You know, a a diagnosis can mean many things for patients. Um, I'm gonna touch upon that. So one, it can mean um, better lifestyle choices, like for myself, um, better lifestyle choices. It could mean that in a case of misdiagnosis, maybe there is actually treatment for their disease, and also to be enrolled into clinical trials. Clinical trials are now becoming more and more specific because these therapies are becoming more and more personalized to people's gene and mutation. So it allows them to roll in the clinical trials. And the last thing is that, particularly when I look at the mutation, I am going, hey, some of the technologies available now can actually work on this particular gene mutation. So it's the next step to some kind of rational, personalized therapy for those patients.
0: And it's true. I've been really lucky in the last three years with our collaboration with both Yale and Harvard. Finding a diagnosis has illuminated treatments that have taken uh, five individuals previously dependent on their power wheelchairs. They can now stand, drive a car, um, the sister can walk. And and when we can do these things, it, it has incredible impact for us. So precision medicine is on the horizon So you touched on something in your talk and it was interesting because I didn't know what Monka was going to talk about when I prepared my questions. But it's about hope and I think it's a really interesting thing, hope and acceptance. So for some families with genetic disorders, you know, the genetic diagnosis is incredibly empowering but it can also confirm their worst fears, that they have an untreatable condition and for many families it's it's life-limiting. And, you know, speaking from my own experience getting a rare disorder in my 40s and then overcoming it, I know it's a really delicate balance between hope that there's a treatment but not expectation of it, and then acceptance of what you have. So I wondered if you wanted to share with the audience how you manage the delicate balance between hope that a treatment will present itself and you can be part of the solution, and acceptance that you may not, but you may forge a path that may help others?
1: So, yeah, that's a, it's a tricky question. question. <laughs> um, so I, I can talk from my experience. So when I first got the genetic diagnosis, and, well, first of all, the clinical diagnosis and genetic diagnosis, there wasn't much acceptance, mainly because my muscles hadn't gotten that bad, so there was part of me that says, maybe you just got it wrong and I'm gonna just get better and things like that, mainly because um, I didn't have that background in genetics, I didn't realize how sort of like deterministic that was, that diagnosis um, when you have a monogenetic a disease, um, and also a disease where they're they're quite certain that you're gonna develop, they may not know when and how severe, so part of me did take a long time to accept it, and also, it's hard but to know that some of the technologies I work on for people at my age, uh, that maybe this therapy won't be actually for me or actually be for patients that are much younger than me. So, And also, a lot of these therapies will only halt the progression of the disease. Um, we're not 100% sure if we'll reverse it, but based on what we know, it probably won't reverse it, so I'm not gonna be able to run again, things like that. So it's the acceptance of also that, that a lot of these therapies, although it, it addresses the g- genetic root cause, it can't reverse things. It's not regenerative, it's more just Just stopping the progression of the disease. So, for me, it's still satisfying, even if it does help someone else and it can't help me, just to know that I can use that technology to help. So, it was never the intention to go on this journey just to help myself. You know, I'm thinking about my sister, I'm thinking about other people that go through the same struggles as me.
0: So that brings me actually really nicely to gene editing. In my mind, I think we're at one of the most influential times in genomic medicine. We can sequence a genome in in five hours, and we can with CRISPR-Cas9 we can precisely edit it in a way that you know I, I never thought possible. You know the, the power of CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing is just phenomenal. So to you know the genetic editing of your cells must have just been a wild, a wild night. That must have been crazy. Well, to explain to the audience, what, what does this mean f- for you and, and where are you going to take this forward from here?
1: Oh, well, for me, it was just mind blowing. Um, when I first got my genetic diagnosis, I, I, I didn't even think there was the technology that could achieve such a thing with <laughs> such precision. So just let people know in the audience that this technology has only been available for the last say. To, uh, you know, three to four years when it's gone mainstream and it's sort of like revolutionised all the different questions we can now ask in genetics, manipulate the genome and ask what is actually the consequence of that and we've never been able to do it with, with such speed and precision and that it's actually sort of like um, a game changer in terms of the rate of discovery now that we can do things at this genome-wide level but for me um, the next steps would be Um, my collaborators want to next try it on a mouse model to see that, yes, we can correct cells, but one of the other challenges is, can we deliver this therapeutic to where it needs to go? So where it needs to go is in all the muscles in the body. So how can we deliver it? How can we deliver it to the heart, a very specialized and important muscle? And, And what is that delivery efficiency? What is that right dose? Is it safe? So one of the hardest things when using this technology, is, is, is it safe in humans? Um, and the next thing is, one of the sort of like realities is to go to clinical trials, someone has to get a payoff. So to get a payoff is you have to have a lot of patients for that clinical trial, or at least you know a handful and not just one. So the next also step for me is to find other people with my exact same mutation around the world. And we know the carry rate is one in a thousand, so we, we, we couldn't... <coughs> Uh, potentially find more patients than I have been. Every time I go back to China um, to try and collaborate and ask the neurologists there, they're able to find more patients. So we believe that there should be a lot more in Southeast Asia. And some of them are living in the United States or Australia because everyone migrates now. So, so it's also to think beyond mutations that affect only Europeans, such as, say, cystic fibrosis and things like that.
0: So uh, I wanted to ask an interesting question. As I said, I'm a, f- I'm a female in neuroscience, so I'm, I'm a rare breed. But so are Cambodian Australians at Yale. I guess one of the things you know I love about science and innovation is that generally we're a really inclusive bunch. We love difference because difference is what leads to innovation. But as a Cambodian Australian in Yale with a disability, What are your experiences just with diversity and inclusivity?
1: Well, I'm going to have to be very honest, it's been very challenging through the whole academic journey Um, and one of the things that I've had to sort of like overcome is this misconception that because my body is physically disabled, my mind is not disabled and it's something I know... people in the audience can't relate to, but there's this constant struggle of just saying, yes, my, you know, I take a long time to walk from A to B, it doesn't mean my mind takes a long time to think from A to B also. And so there are a lot of things that are not in place for people with disabilities. For example, going to conferences, People worry about what they're gonna say, if they're gonna forget what they're gonna say. My biggest worry is how am I gonna get the venue, how am I gonna get on the stage? (laughs) You know, um, there's these constant struggles as a scientist we have to travel a lot and my body can't take the travel and things like that so I worry that can I make the impact in this next stage of my career given I can't travel as much. So there are challenges and and a lot of sort of like new paths that I actually have to like achieved. So one of the things that I did get across with the University of Sydney, which they, I'm very fortunate I was able to get that across, is that when handicapped people travel to conferences, it costs a lot more because they can't get on, say, the shuttle bus to get to the venue and things like that. They'll have to catch a taxi and things like that. And University of Sydney, to their credit, acknowledged that and actually gave me some kind of extra money to actually go on that travel. And it's the same challenges I do have now. And so it's to overcome and make people aware of some of the challenges I have in terms of that. But the Cambodian part... uh, not so challenging, because um, I'd have to be able to speak Cambodian to actually say that I am truly Cambodian, so I see myself more as an Australian.
0: Yes, sure. So, um, this leads me to my next question, and I'm sure many in the audience will be feeling inspired and reflecting upon how lucky we are to be so passionate about what we do, Um, and I guess I wanted to reflect that now you know, you've transitioned to be a, a principal investigator at one of the most prestigious universities. We, we both know, actually, the toll that the constant pressure of performance takes. It's not all roses. We're often on fixed-term contracts. All of our people are on fixed-term contracts. We've got fixed-term funding, and it's really challenging to perform. And I, I know, looking around me, that a physical or mental health issue just exacerbates that. So having reached the PI position at one of the world's most prestigious universities, what keeps you awake at night?
1: (laughs) Well, a lot of the things you just mentioned. So um, I think I I can narrow down the three challenges we have as scientists. One is funding. Where's the funding going to come from? The other is people. So how do I get the best out of the people that I have in my team. And the third is scientific ideas. Um, so I'm gonna to touch on upon all three. So I think uh, being a scientist is a lonely, uh, it's a lonely place, especially as a PI, having to come up with all these ideas for projects and Championing those ideas when your other competitors and other scientists think your ideas are crap. So you know, it's to to go through with that, and you know, because when you have a truly novel idea, people are going to question whether it's actually correct and things like that. So you have to have that perseverance and also self-reliance, but at the same time, not be arrogant and actually take in that feedback when you, your colleagues think your ideas are crap. The other thing is people. So, you know, um, now I appreciate the hard work that you, Sandra, and also Kathy, goes through in trying to get the best out of us that not everyone's on the same page. Everyone wants something different out of their scientific career. And it's actually trying to get the trying to meet in the middle. You want this out of your science career, but we, we need to get this work done. And it's trying to have that healthy balance. And sometimes that gets me up gets me up at night mainly because I was trained to be a scientist and not to be Uh, sort of like a manager of people, and you know, it's one thing that should go into scientific training, especially people that are going to lead teams. How do you actually deal with that? The last is funding. So funding is getting harder and harder because there's so many brilliant scientists that finish their PhD each year, and in the United States, we have this challenge that there is no retirement age, so brilliant scientists want to work until the day they die, because they love the science, and this is their life. So, you know, I can't criticise that, but it makes it challenging, especially for federal funding. But one of the, the advantages we have in the United States, because it's such a large population, is that there are alternative sources of funding, and it's a, um, we can diversify our, funds, uh, uh, our funding sources such as patient foundations that want to see the scientists succeed and they're very, very supportive, especially of junior scientists. And the second is industry, who also want to see this translate and become a product that people can actually use to benefit their lives.
0: I've got one question for any aspiring young people or even not so young people in the audience who would like to pursue genomics. So knowing what you know now and, and really having been at the cutting edge for you know, five, five years, what do you think are the skill sets that the University of Sydney and that we should be increasing capacity in right now to meet the genomic needs of the next five years?
1: So in terms of the genomic need, probably a heavy investment in data science, like how do we um, address the problem of big data, um, the different methods of analysing the big data, and and also thinking about how do we learn from the big data? So a lot of the things that in the United States they're investing on is artificial intelligence and different ways, statistical methods of analyzing that big data. So that is a good way of preparing young scientists or not so young scientists for the the next step if they want to get into genomics. And the other thing is um, just understanding the translation, to know that genomics is a way of answering a particular question and just knowing um, the question actually answers and the, the meaning of that question, not just the big data component of it, you know, contradicting the first comment. The last is just curiosity and also um, the, the ability to think big and ask the question, why not?
0: So if we were to get you back here in 10 years time for another Ideas Night, what would success look like when you reflect back on this night in 10 years time.
1: For me, what I'd want to see in 10 years time is to talk about some of the genetic technologies I touched upon going to clinical trials and showing its impact on patients. Overcoming some of those regulatory hurdles, we have to overcome safety hurdles and also making this effective and talk about some of the the research that say possibly myself and my colleagues have gone and actually benefit patients you know that would be truly amazing and also you know how we've actually one of the things i didn't touch upon is the genetic diagnosis rate is about 50% for rare disease patients so how have we moved the needle to actually get that closer and closer to 100% how have we taken advantage of the new emerging technologies over the next few years to actually get an answer for everyone
0: Okay, well, I'm going to have to wrap it up. I think, firstly, I'd like to thank all of you for giving up your Monday evenings to share it with us tonight. It's been wonderful to have you all. I'd also like to thank Alana and Shavoy for our Auslan interpreters tonight. They've done a great job. Could we show them? My thanks also to the University of Sydney for hosting us in this wonderful room. I I think the acoustics are amazing. They don't build rooms like this anymore. It's just such a wonderful, wonderful place to be. And, of course, I'd like you all to join me in thanking Moncol. I'd love for him to come back to Australia one day, and I'd like to have one more question just to slip in. Is that how could we entice you to come back?
1: (laughs) Oh, that's... (laughs) (laughs) well i miss australia every time i come back um that that's a um difficult question to answer at the moment um i i i really like um some of the cutting edge technology in um, the United States, but I, I see a time where, you know, the the innovation that happens in Australia will be on the same par as that. But, and you know, and I'd love to come back to actually bring some of the the experiences and technology and sort of like the sort of like the the culture back to Australia with the good parts and meld it in with the the great parts of Australian culture so that we can to be on the cutting edge of um, scientific research and also medical research here in Australia. But I, I, I think the thing that, that will most likely bring me back is that Australia has a centralised healthcare system, and having that, you can achieve so many things in the world of genomics and genetics, having access to that data, that rich amount of data in a country that's not too big and not too small, that you can actually make that impact. So I see all those benefits, and it's just um, you know the right pieces coming into place for me to come back.
0: So I think you should leave the audience with one last piece of information, because I do know that there is a Cambodian word you know, because um, your parents eponymously named you, and what does Mongkol mean?
1: <laughs> it means happiness.
0: Thank you.